more faithful with your tithes and offerings can bring many benefits. But can it help you experience spiritual revival? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah examines how God's people in ancient times as well as now have been blessed by committing themselves to biblical giving. From his series on spiritual renewal, listen as David introduces today's message, Taking a Pledge to Give. You know, it's been said that a person's checkbook will reveal what is most important in that person's life. And Jesus said that one's heart and treasure can be found in the same place. The Jews have now returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they're making a commitment to put God first. That includes their resources. Strange as it may be, in the 10th chapter of Nehemiah, there is an incredible lesson on stewardship. We're going to talk about it today and tomorrow. I hope you'll stay with us. Friends, we are at the very end of the opportunity to invite you to Israel. The registration process is just about ready to close. But our Holy Land tour takes place March 22nd through April 1st. There's still time, if you act immediately, for you to come and be with us. Just go to our website, get all the information, follow through on every detail, and hopefully we'll connect in the place where Jesus walked. The Holy Land Tour, once again, is March 22nd through April 1st. And then don't forget that during these early days of January, we're recruiting our support teams for the year that's ahead. All of these different support groups are signing up, re-signing people, recruiting people. The Bible Strong Partners Group is a very wonderful group of faithful people who stand with us every month as we teach the Word of God all over the world. We'd love to have you be a part of it, and we will supply you with many resources throughout the year as one of the Inner Circle family members here at Turning Point. Well, let's open our Bibles now to the 10th chapter of Nehemiah. This is called Taking a Pledge to Give. We are talking about the subject of renewal. Another word for the word renewal is the word revival. It is interesting to study the revivals of history and to discover that in every genuine revival that we have been able to document, there has always been an aspect of that revival that had something to do with our stewardship and our commitment and our giving. You may wonder what in the world stewardship and giving have to do with revival. But if you stop for a moment and remember, perhaps you will comprehend with those who have studied the subject that our stewardship may be the clearest indication of where our heart is before God. It is easy for us to mouth our commitment to the Lord and to even sign commitment cards. But what we do with our money is truly an indication of where our heart is. The Bible says that where our treasure is, our heart will be. And the reverse of that is also true. Where our heart is, our treasure will be. Someone told me a long time ago, if you wanted to find out what people truly believed in, you should go with them to their homes and let them show you the stubs in their checkbook, and you would find out what they believed in. Most of us believe in homes, places to live. Most of us believe in automobiles to cart us around from place to place. Most of us believe in the importance of hospitalization and insurance. Most of us believe in health care and good clothing and all of the rest. And that will somewhere show up in our checkbook. 
It's easy for us to say that we believe in God and that we love the Lord and find scarce evidence of it when we examine the hard evidence. The hard evidence is what we do with that which God has entrusted to us. That is the indication of where our heart is. But it is also true, and I have pondered this on many occasions, that our money is more than an indication of where our heart is. Our money represents who we are. If you follow the logic, you will understand that when we go to work for someone, we literally give ourselves to that person. We hire out to that person. And in exchange for ourselves and our employment and our involvement, that person exchanges the hours of our time and our effort and our talent and who we are and gives it back to us in coins and says, because of your investment in this particular place of employment, we are now going to take what you have given to us of yourself and we're going to exchange it for dollars. And these dollars represent who you are. And when we take those dollars that represent who we are and we give them to God, we are literally giving ourselves to God. And we are saying to God, here I am. I bring myself to you. This represents the reality of my life. So it is not hard to understand that one of the steps of renewal, one of the steps of revival, has a great deal to do with how we deal with our finances. I do not believe it is possible to be totally in fellowship with God and out of phase with your stewardship and your giving. I don't just not believe that. I know that it is not possible to do that. Because we have clear instruction from the Word of God as to how we're to give and how we're to function. And when we fudge on that, when we don't do that, we are simply fooling ourselves and we know it in our hearts because we always feel so miserable when a pastor begins to talk about it. We have talked about steps to renewal and we have reminded ourselves that the first step is getting back to the book and the second step is getting serious about obedience and the third step is getting concerned about sin and the fourth step is getting caught up in worship and the fifth step is becoming countable for conduct. But step number six is taking a pledge to give. And it's exciting to read what happened to the people in Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time when they had the walls built and the project was finished. And then they began to read the word of God and realized that while they had done the project all right, they were not in fellowship with the Lord and they had backslidden and they'd gotten away from the things of God. And they began to read the word of God in chapter 8 and Ezra opened it up to them and the Bible says they began to weep and began to pray and they began to go out and obey what God told them to do. And now we come to the 10th chapter and we discover that as they began to understand the word of God, that they made ordinances for themselves and they charged themselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. They said, we aren't doing right by the Lord. And if we're going to be in fellowship with him, we've got to get this in focus. We've got to get in fellowship with God when it comes to our finances. I heard a story not long ago about a member of the Internal Revenue Service that telephoned a Baptist minister one day and he said, I'm reviewing the tax return of one of your church members. 
and he listed a donation of $200 to your church. Can you tell me if he made that contribution? And the minister replied, I don't have the records in front of me, but if he didn't, he will. Now, you stop and think about that for a moment. That's one way to raise money. That's one way to get into the pocketbooks of people. But God has a better way. God just tells us in his word, this is what I want you to do. And as we look at this section of Scripture, obviously it is set in the context of the Old Testament law. And we are not under the Old Testament law, although I am more persuaded every year that I live that the principles of the Old Testament, while they are not binding upon us as a part of the law, the principles are translatable into the New Testament economy as well. I'd like to show you some of the principles in this Old Testament section that are transferable concepts into your life and into mine. First of all, as you read about this in verses 32 through 39, you will discover that there is a priority involved in all of this. Notice in verse 35, it speaks of the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all fruit of all trees. Verse 36, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks. Verse 37, the firstfruits of our dough. Now, I might as well just stop for a moment and talk about that last one. That is not dough as you and I understand dough. That may be a very translatable principle that God wants the first fruits of our dough, but he's talking about the real dough, not the kind of dough you and I talk about. But I want you to note that in every one of those phrases that I've read, there is the word first. Firstlings, first fruits, first. What does that mean? That means that in God's economy, what we do as we give back to Him is to be a priority. We're not to give Him what is left over, we're to give Him that which is first. We're to take that which belongs to Him and make that a priority in our lives. He should be number one. As we have monies that God has put into our stewardship, He should be first, and we are to give back to Him the first of that which He has entrusted to us. One of the things that happens to Christians in this economy is that they get so burdened down with debt and so overrun with obligations that they begin to shuffle God along with the rest of their bills. And God gets shuffled to the bottom because he's not calling on the phone and saying, it's due. And then all of a sudden they look up one day and that which started out to be a happy situation for them has become a very sad one because you cannot neglect God in your stewardship and have joy in your heart and have the blessing of the Lord upon your life. It just needs to be settled right off the bat, whether it's under the law or not under the law, that God expects the priority of our giving to be to Him. We need to get in the habit of taking whatever God has given to us and writing God's portion first, giving it to Him immediately, not waiting for all of the pressures of life to come and push it away. I don't know anybody who is a faithful steward of the things of God who has not come, first of all, to make God a priority in their life. And they have written God's portion first. And you know what happens? In the very process of doing that, we give testimony to the fact that God is first in our lives. And every time we do that, what do you do when you go through that? You have to sit down, and I know the agony of it. I've been there, and I get there easy, just like you do. And you sit down, and you see all the responsibilities and when you look at how much you have and what you need to do with what you have, you begin to say, 
how am I going to care for this? And how am I going to care for that? And we need to deal with this over here. And boy, the kid's school bill is coming due. And, and what are we going to do about that? And all of a sudden, there's a little temptation creeps into the back of your mind. Well, maybe we could just put off what we do for God. And then the Spirit of God comes to convict you of that. And in that very process, you are caused to refocus your whole life again on the thing that is most important to you. And that is your walk with the Lord and his priority in your life. So here in this chapter, there is, first of all, a priority. And we need to make God a priority in our life and in our stewardship. If you're not doing that, I can tell you that you are not feeling a sense of success and satisfaction in your ministry of giving to the Lord. Notice, secondly, there's a plan involved in this chapter. Verse 32 says, They made themselves ordinances to charge themselves yearly. Verse 34 says, They did this at times appointed year by year. Verse 35 again says, Year by year. There is a plan. We have slipped into a very sloppy attitude about stewardship in this modern church age. And that is, we have come to believe that because we live under grace, we can just sort of willy-nilly give to God whenever it's convenient, whenever it seems good, and we don't have any plan, whatever the Spirit leads us to do. And let me tell you, Christian fundraisers depend upon that attitude. They know that if they can get inside your emotions, they can sway you to give because most Christian people have absolutely no plan for how they give to God. Yet here in this passage of Scripture, there is a systematic plan that they themselves laid out in accordance with the Old Testament law. They had a plan and a purpose. In the New Testament, we're told in 1 Corinthians 16 that on the first day of the week, each one of us is to lay by us in store as God has prospered us that there be no gatherings when I come. Again, we are told we are to do this on the first day of the week. There's to be a plan. There's to be a purpose in all that we do. Of course, the first day of the week we know is Sunday. The New Testament language uses a distributive word in 1 Corinthians 16, and it literally means Sunday by Sunday you should give to God. That's our plan. Every week, week in and week out, we're to give to God that which belongs to him. We need to remember, Christians, that the freedom that has been granted to us in giving is not to be confused with a spasmodic, whenever-I-feel-like-it attitude. As Christians in this generation, in this dispensation, we are to be regular and systematic in our financial stewardship. It is a fair inference that Sunday was the day which was set aside for the public worship of the Corinthian congregation, and that this custom was also followed in Galatia and in the other churches that had been founded by Paul. And so he wrote these letters to them in the New Testament. He says, whenever you come together on the Lord's Day, make sure that you care for your giving to the things of God. Do it Sunday by Sunday, regularly, in a planned and systematic way. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, says 2 Corinthians 9, 7. We are to give as they did in the Old Testament, systematically, proportionately, faithfully, as we have determined to do in our heart. The Greek word that is translated in 2 Corinthians by the word purpose means to choose beforehand. In other words, God is telling us that we are to plan and pray and prepare and not give haphazardly or spasmodically, but do it according to a plan. And every year we should take time and talk about what God has done and how he's blessed us and determined by the grace of God, this year is what I'm going to do for the things of the Lord. This is what God has laid upon my heart. And then make a commitment to it and ask God to help you to make that commitment 
realized in your daily experience as a believer. I think one of the tragedies is that we have such a tremendous up and down cycle in our giving. And you know, a church is simply the picture of the individuals within the church. The reason a church has an up and down cycle in its giving is because a lot of God's people have an up and down cycle in their giving. And God expects us to be systematic and he expects us to be committed and he expects us to give according to a plan, regularly, systematically. Notice, they charged themselves. They subtracted it themselves. They said, this we are willingly going to do. We're going to commit ourselves to a planned system of supporting the things of God. And then I want you to note in this context that there is a proportion involved in this matter. Verse 32 says, they gave a third of a shekel, which was the temple tax. Verse 37 speaks of the tithe. Verse 38 speaks of the tithes. I've talked to people on occasion about tithes, and I noticed that there's a lot of confusion among God's people about that term. Somebody said, I'm going to tithe 30%. Well, wait a minute now. Or I'm going to tithe 8%. But the word tithe means 10%. So you can't 10% 30%, or you can't 10% 8%. If you're going to give 30%, you're triple tithing. If you're going to give 9%, you can't use the word tithe because it doesn't fit. A tithe is 10%. And in the Old Testament, there were a number of tithes that the Jews were responsible to pay. There were three tithes in the Old Testament that the Jews had to pay. First of all, there was the temple tithe. This was an annual 10% given to the Levites to support the Levites in the temple. And it was something they were required to do. It was given from the fruit of the land and from the flocks and from the herds. It was a recognition that all man possessed belong to God. That was the first tithe. And then there was the festival tithe, and you'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter 14. This was also an annual tithe given for the purpose of financing the annual feasts that the Jews celebrated. This tithe could be given in the form of goods, animals, or produce, or it could be converted into money. No man was allowed to neglect his service to God by pleading poverty. Every Jew had to give that second tithe. Now, if you know how to add, you know that one tithe plus two tithe, we're up to 20% already. And then there was a third tithe, or the benevolent tithe. This tithe was collected every third year for the poor. It served as a divine social security. They collected this money to care for the poor. So there were three tithes that the Jews paid, a tithe to fund the operation of the government, a tithe to support the religious feasts, and a benevolent tithe. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, you surely don't expect me to give 30% to the things of God. Well, you need to understand that the Jews lived in a culture and in an economy where the government and the church were all together. We don't do that. And I dare say that most of us, if we tithe to the Lord and pay our taxes, are pretty much where the Jews are. We're moving in that direction if we're not already there. If you add your tax together with your tithe and the other matters that you give to support the government and the state tax and the income tax for the government and the money that you give to God, if you're being obedient in your stewardship, you're probably somewhere close to where the Jewish people were. But of course, every third year, in addition to these tithes, he gave another tithe. And then on top of his tithes, he gave the offerings. And if you look through this passage, you will discover that there were many offerings for different things in the Jewish worship. The Jew gave a third shekel temple tax, which was used to provide the showbread and the grain for the sacrifices. And you'll see that in verse 32. 
He gave up the profit of his land during the Sabbath rest as he was commanded to do so by the Lord. He also lived under the year of release, a stipulation which required the Jew every seven years to forgive all the debts that were owed him. No matter if he had a mortgage or whatever, at the end of every seven years, he had to go to the person who owed him money and say, you don't owe me anymore. I'm sure there weren't too many long-term loans. You try to collect it in the first four or five years if you could, right? So the Jews had a very wonderful plan for taking care of that. And of course, it all came from God. He laid it out. He put it out there in front of him. Now, some folks come to me and they say, well, Pastor Jeremiah, I don't think I'm responsible to tithe because I'm not under the law. No, you just have been blessed so much more because you're on this side of the cross, you're under grace, and I just can't imagine somebody arguing from the perspective that they gave 10% for the things of the Lord under the law, and now that we're under grace, we don't have to do that. We can get by with three or four and feel good about ourselves. My friend, if we were required under the law to give 10% to the things of God, what in the world should be our attitude as members of the church of God in the economy of grace? St. Augustine, a church father who lived a long, long time ago, said, Our forefathers abounded in plenty because they gave God tithes. But now because our devotion toward God has receded, the imposition of taxes has advanced. We were unwilling to share with God, giving him the tenth, and now the whole is taken from us. The tax gatherer takes from us that which Christ was not able to gather. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to ponder what would happen even in our country supposed American country of Christian influence if God's people gave as they were responsible to do. So here in this chapter, we see that principle. Notice there was a purpose involved in this matter. First of all, in verse 34, we're told that they gave this way so they could submit to the law of God. Why did they give in this way? Why did they tax themselves? Why did they say, we're going to give so much and we're going to do it in such a way? Because when they read the Old Testament, this is what God said to do. And they just took God at his word. And they said, if God says we should do this and we want renewal in our lives and we want to have the sense of fellowship with God and having these walls build up around us isn't enough, but we want to be right inwardly, then if God says do this, we're just being naive enough to do it. And they did according to the law. Isn't it simple when we just boil it right down to the least common denominator to realize that if you're going to have the blessing of God upon your life and God says for you to do a certain thing in his word and you keep saying, no, I'm not going to do it, you can't expect to have the blessing of God if you're resisting God's directive will upon your life. I mean, you know, we try to make that so mystical, so mysterious. It's just as plain as I said. Here's what God says. Here's what I'd like you to do. This is my will for your life. Do this. And if you do this, you will be blessed. Um, often think about that when we have communion at our church. People ask, why do you have communion? Well, the number one reason is because Jesus told us to. He said, this do in remembrance of me. If there were no other reason, if there were no symbolism, if there was nothing else in communion except the command of the Lord Jesus to do it, we would do it because we know that in doing it, we are blessed. The same is true here as we study the Old Testament. We'll have more about this tomorrow here on Turning Point. I hope you'll join us then. By the way, we have some great uh, resources to go along with this series. There's a beautiful study guide that takes you through the 10 steps to spiritual renewal. And there's a whole set of CDs. You can get those as well from Turning Point. 
And of course, uh, our resource for this month is this beautiful devotional book by O.S. Hawkins called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Know. You know, the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was to pray. Teach us to pray. And maybe they wanted a richer, deeper prayer life, but didn't know how to go about it. One of the things I love about O.S. Hawkins' prayer book is it is simple, it's to the point, it's very scriptural, and if you follow the action items in this book, things will improve for you in your prayer life. I promise you that. This book is like all of the other code books, wonderfully grounded in the Word of God, but filled with applicational thoughts that, as O.S. Hawkins said, he's not so interested in getting people into the Word of God, he's interested in getting the Word of God into people and in your life and in your daily walk. If you ordered this book by sending a gift to Turning Point this month, we'll send it to you right away. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God, but we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. If you enjoy listening to Turning Point with David Jeremiah, you'll be happy to hear that there is now a daily Turning Point television broadcast that you can watch each weekday. Tune in to Faith TV, Joy TV, or Miracle Channel Monday through Friday to watch the Turning Point daily television broadcast. Be sure to check your local listings for the channel and time in your area. Or visit davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV to download a program schedule or watch at your convenience. That website again is davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV. The medieval priest Thomas A. Kempis once wrote the following, At the day of judgment we shall not be asked what we have read, but what we have done. 
He was not against reading, but was saying God is more concerned about how we live than in what we know. I believe, however, that when it comes to examining how we have lived, it will be clearly obvious whether we have read one particular book or not. And that book is the Bible. For it is only in that book that we learn what it is God expects us to do for Him as followers of Christ. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover what God expects on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. That's Route66life.com. Route 66, start your journey home today.